listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is an astrophysicist, science communicator, and host of the Spark Dialogue podcast. Her podcast is on science and society and tells the story of science in our lives and the connection of science with things like religion, philosophy, history, culture, ethics, art, and the future. If you enjoyed Down the Wormhole, and if you're listening, I hope you do, you will definitely love Spark Dialogue. So welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth Fernandez. Thank you very much, Jack. It's wonderful to have you here. We've been talking about both having you here for an interview and also doing crossover episodes for what feels like years. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So it's good to finally get to chat with you. Um, It's also good to have a fellow science podcaster on the podcast. Um, So maybe we could start out by telling the good folks at home a little bit about what Spark Dialogue is all about. Like what made you want to start it? What keeps you going? What sorts of things are you doing on there? Yeah, sure. Um, So I started Spark Dialogue about, I guess, six years ago now. And so I have almost 100 episodes. I'm I'm getting there quickly. And we talk about all different things in science and technology. But the thing that kind of sets us apart from a lot of the science uh, podcasts is to see the connections of science with our everyday life. So a lot of times we talk about ethics or philosophy. We talk about a religion a lot. Um, we talk about history, art, culture, and all the, how all those things relate to science. And so basically the idea is to, to show that science isn't just, you know, something that's being done in a lab somewhere. And it's something that is like, it's affecting our lives every day and affecting our lives in really interesting ways and sort of making people think about those interesting connections between science and other different areas Mm. of their life that might engage new people into the science conversation. Mm. Congratulations on almost being at 100 episodes. That is not easy. I thought it was a lot easier until I started a podcast. And my goodness, (laughs) (laughs) I think you just launched 93 was the last one, which was a very interesting talk with... John Van Sloten um, about mm-hmm. gratitude in COVID tide, which he was on our podcast as well. Those of you who may remember this uh, somewhat scientific mystic pa- Canadian pastor, perpetual optimist. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful episode that you should listen to the most latest one. Um, you've covered so many different types of topics in these ninety three episodes. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty impressive how much of a generalist you're able to be for someone who is also a very much a specialist in in the world of astronomy. But you kind of have to be, right? If you're a science communicator yeah. in the public sphere. Um, so And that's what's that's what's fun about it. That's <laughs> I love, you know, waking up in the morning and not knowing what I'm going to learn today. Mm. Learning about new things every day. It's a lot of fun. And it also allows me to make a lot of different connections between different fields, which like, you know, if you're a, if you're a specialist really deep into your, and I, that's what I used to be, really deep into my own field, you don't really know what's going on a lot in mm-hmm. other fields. 
And it's nice to be able to see the connections between different fields and and see what you can extrapolations you can make. How do you kind of plan out what's next? There are tons of people doing really interesting research out there. <laughs> and so I kind of just I kind of look for the people mm. and I, I look for what they're doing because they know they know what the interesting questions in their own field are. And so, you know, I go to conferences, I read a lot, a lot, and kind of seeking out the people who would be interesting to talk to. And then I talk to them and see what they're working on and see what excites them. And, you know, most of these topics I wouldn't have been able to come up with on my own because I don't know everything. <laughs> I mean, these these are the people that uh, they're really smart in their field, and and there's a lot of people working on interdisciplinary work in their own way, and so that's what I look for. I look for the people. What do you think that we should be talking about in the public sphere that we're not really focusing on right now? Um, that's a good question. Um, I I think a lot of things we are talking about to some extent, but we're not necessarily talking about it in a really broad sense. Um, one of those that comes to mind is, of course, climate change. <laughs> Everyone's talking about climate change, but a lot of times it's a science question or it's a policy question, which of course it is, but I think people don't realize how much of a moral question it is, how much of a spiritual or religious question it is. Um, Climate change is really one of those areas that touches everything, every aspect of our life. And especially for people who are living on the other side of the world, who are in you know places like sub-Saharan Africa or Bangladesh or the South Pacific, they're living with these issues. And for them, it's like it's a cultural issue. It's a, you know, it's a it's an issue they live with every single day. And, you know, we as privileged people in the West don't necessarily always see that. Um, another one is um, just like ethics and technology. Mm. Like a lot of people are very excited who work in the tech fields. They're very excited to develop the next up and coming tech, but there's not necessarily a lot of talk of the ethics behind it. And so there are a lot of people um, who who do go and they say, okay, what, what do we have to look with? What do we have to be concerned with? And they're trying to engage with the people who are developing tech to make sure that the, the tech that is developed is, is to some degree, you know, safe. Is some degree. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're thinking about issues that we should be thinking of and how it, how it affects people culturally, how it affects, uh, like development of children, um, all, all sorts of things, like all, all, all things we should be, uh, thinking yeah. about. Didn't Google just fire its ethics team for questioning Google's ethics? Uh, it is it is a thorny issue because a lot of people are afraid to bring up what the ethics may be if it threatens making money. And, you know, a lot of these companies, that's what their goal is, is to make mm. money. Um, and luckily for us, there are people who are concerned with other things besides just how much uh, is on their on their budget. Um but yeah, I mean, a lot of times these questions definitely come into conflict with with the bottom line. So you've done a lot of uh, interfaith work as well as interdisciplinary work and international work. You're kind of uh, an inter-specialist. And when it comes to issues of technology and of ethics, 
one of the questions that comes up sometimes is whose ethics, um, who kind of mm-hmm. gets to be the gatekeeper in determining what is and is not good in terms of the technology that we create in the society we're making. Um, do you have any any thoughts, any insights into that power dynamic moving forward? And um, yeah, that definitely is one of the things that people think about because you know every world religion has a different set of uh, ethics. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of overlap between religions. <laughs> but that is a question that people have to take into account, um, especially like let's say you're marketing a product uh, in very different places. You're marketing a product in the Middle East or in Europe or in the United States or wherever. Um, a lot of that will have to do with the local area that you're dealing with. So if you're planning on marketing something in the Middle East, you should get people who are experts of what people actually think in the Middle East. Um, but it is, it is tricky, and that's that's why it's important to have a lot of dialogue with people because it is, it is one of those things that there are multiple opinions, and it's not fact. <laughs> it's not like science, and which which is a fact. You have to you have to talk to people, and that's why dialogue is important mm. in instances like this. Yeah. So before you were. Uh masterful science communicator. You were uh, an astrophysicist, a- astronomer. I, I'm, I'm, I'm still not great with the, the titles, um, but you did. As long as you don't talk, call me an astrologist. You... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. As long as you don't call me an astrologer. <laughs> you were one of the magi. Um, you uh, <laughs> looked at pretty stars in the sky with big telescopes. That's I'll go there. I know that much. <laughs> um, um, can you can you tell us a little bit about what that work looked like, what, what you were studying, what you've you've worked on? Sure. Um, I'm just going to go back and say that one last sentence because I called myself, an, or as long as you don't call me an astrologist, which isn't a word. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll say it again. Um, as long as you don't call me an astrologer. Mm. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've done, I've done a lot of different things in astronomy. Uh, most of my work on telescopes have actually been telescopes in space. So, like, for example, the Herschel Space Telescope is is a lot like Hubble, except it looks in the infrared. Mm. And so I did a lot of my work with that. I've also been observing several places, some small, uh, some small telescopes around the world. Also, I went to Mauna Kea in Hawaii and observed there, the VLA in New Mexico. That's a big array of radio dishes. For if you've seen the movie Contact, that's that's where I was at. Um uh, but actually, most of my work was actually theoretical, so I didn't always go out to the telescope at night. I was doing a lot of my work on computers, making models and simulations of what the universe might be like. So my work is talking about, or was my work was talking about what the first few generations of stars and galaxies in the universe would look like. And the thing is, when you're looking at stars that are forming many, many, many uh, billions of years ago, there's a big difference between what stars look like then and what stars look like now. And the main difference is because stars that are forming now, they have all different types of things in them. 
They have, of course, hydrogen and helium, but they also have elements like carbon, iron, silicon, all these types of things that we see around us. But all of those heavier elements beyond helium and a little bit of lithium were formed actually in stars and in supernova explosions. So if you go back in time to before there were any stars, that means that first generation of stars would only have hydrogen and helium. So the question is, what were these stars like? How did that affect the first few generations of stars? And so I worked with uh, a lot of different people to look at. Uh, I worked with a lot of different people to develop models of what we should expect these stars to look like. And I worked in the infrared. Um, I also worked with people who are working with a large radio telescope array in Europe, which is called LOFAR. And that looks at uh, the radio emission from the areas around these stars. And just sort of kind of piecing together the puzzle of what these stars might be like. And it's tricky because they're really, really far away. You know, as 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 your listeners probably know, the, the farther away you look, the farther back in time you're looking. So in order to see the first stars that are forming, of course, you have to look very, very, very far away. And the problem with this is that there's a lot of stuff in the way. There's <laughs> there's stuff in our own solar system. There's foreground stars. There's foreground galaxies. There's lots of stuff in space. It's, it's not just empty. <laughs> and so you have to figure out, you have to model all of those different things to subtract that to find this very, very, very faint signal that's coming from the first stars many, many, many light years away. So you're basically finding the signals that are finding empty spaces between stars and galaxies and whatnot that have traveled all the way from the beginning to us? I w so I was looking at the signal from the stars themselves, right. the signal from the galaxies themselves, and also the signal from the gas around the galaxies. Uh, and then and then in um, does that answer your question? I, I, I'm not exactly sure if you're talking of. about the gas. Well, now in, you've got me in the now way you've got me of us. That uh, <laughs> like there are things in the way. You can't look. There are you things. Can't in look the way. through yes. the sun to to get to <laughs> what's far, far back. Um, so, like, if you're trying to look for, say, the cosmic microwave background radiation, I get that in the right order. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you, you basically have to look for the signals that are not being uh, interrupted by the stars and planets and things that are in the way? Um, are, are there radiation that's going through some of those things and getting to us? Or like, how do we how do we cancel out the things that are in the way to see that far back in time? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And actually bringing up the cosmic microwave background is a really good analogy because a lot of people are more familiar with that. So that's essentially exactly what we're looking at, except we're looking at the sky in the infrared. Um, and this would, uh, uh, and so in order to see these stars that are forming at the very beginning of the epic of stars, you do have to take into account everything in the way. And so it is go this light is going through dust, it's going through gas, it's going through galaxies that are too faint to see individually, so we have to figure out how many of these galaxies are out there. <laughs> um, it's going through all sorts of stuff that we might not even know yet. 
Um, and so that's part of the tricky part is trying to figure out, well, is this light from the first stars or is it from something else that's closer to us that we just don't know, that we just don't see? And that's where the modeling comes in, is, is that's why I was doing so much intensive modeling to figure out, okay, if these stars had these properties, what would this light look like? If it had this property, what would this light look like? And when you begin to combine a lot of different types of properties, a lot of different types of models with multiple types of observations, then you begin to narrow down what could potentially be from early stars and what could be potentially from something else that's in the way. Wow. <laughs> this feels a lot like archaeology. <laughs> clearing yeah. away all the dust and looking for the dinosaur bones underneath. That's this is exciting. Um what 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 did the early universe look like? What did those early stars look like? So in this area there's still a lot of unknowns and that's sort of what we're trying to piece together is like how big these stars were, um, how they ended their lives. So, you know, in our local universe, we see stars explode in supernovas. Um, did this, this happen if like, let's say these first stars were really, really huge. Um, then there are all sorts of questions like where did the supermassive black holes in the center of galaxies come from? That's a really good question. Um, where, uh, how did, how did galaxies form in the first place? Like, did, did, did we form uh, galaxies first and then these clumps of gas form stars or did the stars kind of congregate together first and then form mm. galaxies? Um, what kind of, what were the galaxies like? Were they, were they really small or were they, were they bigger? Like all of these different types of questions we can ask, um, and yeah, that's that's what's so, what's so tricky. There's there's so many different things that we, you can look at, so many variables you can change, and it's a it's like a laboratory that we can't see today. We can we can look at our universe today and kind of make some guesses, but there are so many things that are different about the early universe that we just don't know. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, this is evolving so quickly and changing so quickly, and there's so many new. I, I imagine that. Things like advances in computing power is helping to advance this, and new tech, uh, uh, new mm -hmm. telescopes uh, on Earth and in space. Um, is there a particular telescope that is in the works that you're super excited about? Um, there's a lot of them. Uh, of <laughs> course, a lot of people probably heard JWST, which is sort of the successor to Hubble, and that should be able to see quite. It'll make it'll make the pictures from Hubble look dated, <laughs> uh, and 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 we should be able to see quite far back in time as well with this with JWST, and then there's lots of things being done. Um, probably people haven't heard as much about what's being done in the radio or in the uh, some millimeter mm -hmm. range, and there's lots of great telescopes all around the world, all different types of arrays that can also look back in time. And then if you really want to go out there, <laughs> you could look at uh, the gravitational wave telescopes. And gravitational wave telescopes, they can see even farther back than, than, than light. And this is technology that still has a long way to go, but when we, be, we could be able to see even farther back than the cosmic microwave background, and then we could figure out what our really infant universe was like. And we could see further back than that? 
with with uh, gravitational. Oh my waves. goodness! You can you can look even farther back. Yeah, that that is technology that is still a long ways away, <laughs> but you know within I don't know within a hundred years <laughs> maybe we'll wow. be there. Oh wow! Okay, so you think within a couple of generations we could get frighteningly close to being able to see the beginning of the universe. Not, not like the actual beginning beginning, but like very close to the beginning because we're already able to see pretty close to the beginning, right? So yeah, the the as far back as we can see with the cosmic microwave background, that's as far back we can see with light. That's when the universe was a baby, but it was still 400,000 years old, around 400,000 years old. So that's a lot of time that we don't have information from as far as observations. We have a lot of theoretical <laughs> ideas, but as far as observations, uh, uh, we don't have any direct observations from before then. Um, and so that's where uh, gravitational waves might come in. Wow. I guess you're right that the ones, the the telescopes and all that are dealing in um, wavelengths and, and whatnot that are not visual, are not as appealing to the general public because they don't end up on the astronomy picture of the day website like the way that the Hubble ones do. Well, the the issue with uh, the cosmic microwave background is before the cosmic microwave background, the universe was actually opaque. Um, it was so dense that photons couldn't travel freely to us. Mm. There, it's like a it's like a big photon soup where photons are just bouncing off each other, and so. Light that's coming from before then can't reach us because there are so many photons in the way that it'll bounce off another photon before it gets to us. And it's only the only reason we can see the cosmic microwave background is that's the instant when the universe became less dense enough that photons were able to stream to us directly from that surface. Wow. So that's why we can't see before then, because the universe was just so dense that not even light could really get anywhere <laughs> without bouncing off something else. Huh. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I love <left> you speechless. <laughs> that takes a lot. <laughs> it's just amazing to think about being able to look that far in the past. And like when you're saying that light couldn't reach us back then, I think to myself, well, weren't weren't we in it back then? But now we're out, but we are seeing the back and the in when it was and the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the that's the thing when it comes to astronomy is you you can't think of of um you have to think of time as another dimension essentially. We're we're far into the future, which is far away time-wise from what we're seeing. So time is, is you could think of it as a dimension when you, when you think about these problems. Yeah. Um, as m many times as I've read about and heard explained the expansion of the universe, it all still sounds like magic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in, in your studying of the stars, um, the earliest stars, the beginnings of the universe. Um, has your particular faith, spirituality, religion, whatever it may be for you, has has have you found any insights from from the the work that you've done scientifically? 
Yeah, I have quite a bit. So it's, I think the biggest one for me is looking at the sheer size of the universe. And when you really get to learning about how big the universe is and how detailed it is and how long it was around before humans even existed, it, it the scale is, is, is literally something we just can't comprehend. Our little brains just can't comprehend it. Um, and that's also true when you look at the complexity of physics. Like when you see how complex physics is, you see how complex science is, it's just amazing. Mm. And the universe didn't have to be that complex for us to exist. The universe, the science doesn't have to be that complex for us to exist as far as, far as from the point of view of God, let's say. Um, so the fact that it is, what does that tell us about mm. God? Tells us maybe he has a lot of time on his hands, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it also is, is, is kind of neat because for me, it's like, it, it's, it's a way that um, I kind of look at it for, for people like me, God is giving a big puzzle mm. to. Like, how does it all work? How, how does it all fit together? And I think that part of it is, he just likes to give us something amazingly complex to ponder and to view. And of course, when you create something that's complex, that means the person who is creating it has to be even more complex than the pers- the thing that's being mm. created. And so that tells you how complex God is. Um, so for me, that's sort of the, the insight I get from it. That's at least one of yeah. them. Um, if you don't mind, what, what is your uh, religious background? Yeah, so I'm a Catholic, and um, growing up, being raised as a Catholic, we were very pro-science. I don't know how many people know this, but the the person who came up with the idea of the Big Bang, uh, Georges Lamotte, he was a Jesuit priest. And so there's a lot of very pro-science sentiment uh, in the Catholic Church, and this is one of the one of the areas that it shows up. I mean, we have the Vatican Observatory in Rome uh, that's doing a lot of great science work, and there's a lot of a lot of priests who are astronomers. There's a lot of astronomers who work with priests, and the other way around. Um, so it's um, there's a lot of conversation between the astronomy field and uh, religious mm. field. I, we've gotten multiple. Uh, messages from people on the podcast saying um, we really appreciate your uh, your thoughts and your insights, but you need more Catholics. <laughs> There's no Catholic perspective on your podcast, and I'll always say the same thing: like, yeah, I know, right? And the Catholics have done such good work. How many bodies, heavenly bodies, are named after Jesuits? Like, <laughs> so many. <laughs> we we often just think like. At least we in the Protestant world will be like, well, Catholics, Galileo, <laughs> they hate science. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a misunderstanding, you know. Um, but for I mean, in general, like growing up as a Catholic, we we're very pro science. So, you know, I've been very encouraged in my love of science, and that's mm-hmm. great. You said a little bit about how your scientific work has helped to illuminate your spirituality a little bit. 
Um, mm-hmm. Are there are there ways where you see it going the other way, where your uh, faith or religion or spirituality affects the way that you do science? Hmm. I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> um, I think one of the biggest ways is like we we talked a bit before about the ethics. Um, now, astronomy and ethics, there's not a lot necessarily mm. of overlap, but in the other areas that I've looked at as far as like uh, looking at AI, looking at, um, like I mentioned before, climate mm. change, um, looking at just science in our everyday lives, medicine, um, that that I think there's a lot more uh, crossover there as far as my my faith affecting that. And as, as far as as far as just doing science in general, uh, particularly astronomy, I think that my philosophy and my faith sort of shows me that to be humble in what I know. Mm. And this is a big thing when you're looking when you're making models of the early universe, where you know you could have your favorite model but chances are it's wrong. <laughs> um, and, and sort of to be humble in that and to see, okay, where could I have gone wrong? Where could I, what could I change? How, how am I not seeing the whole picture? Mm. How am I, what kind of things could I think of? So it, it sort of brings a sense of humbleness. It brings a sense of more, maybe creativity mm. in a way that, um, that, if I just was doing the science by itself and not thinking of, you know, just trying to get an answer, <laughs> um, you know, I might not be have as open of a mind to particular, particularly different ideas or ways to approach hmm. the problem. That is a very good insight. Um, so on a completely different note, you are a fellow lover of unusual musical instruments, correct? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, tell me about your favorites. The one I'm learning now, since the pandemic has started, I have acquired a hammer dulcimer. Ooh, a hammer dulcimer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's something I've wanted to learn for about a decade. And so I am very slowly learning it. <laughs> I wish it was a little bit faster, but unfortunately... I thought I would have a lot of time when the pandemic started, but having small children at home, you don't really have a lot of time during a pandemic. Oh, goodness, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but at least I have one now, and and I get to play it, and I do know a couple songs, and that's been a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I I I uh, like lots of I like collecting lots of different musical instruments. Um, one of my favorite memories from my college days was going to somebody's house for Thanksgiving and they had just a big basket of musical instruments, mm. um, all sorts of things like thumb organs and, and uh, maracas and, you know, things that are easy to play, but she just passed it out. Everyone take an instrument and everyone just made music together. And so I, a lot of times I collect little things like that. Uh, I have uh, like a steel drum, I have thumb organs, I have a, a Irish penny mm. whistle, things that are easy to play. And, uh, you know, just, just to have that love of music around just to have people playing that's it's great yeah i i love it i i got a um uh, a mountain dulcimer that was oh, okay uh it's made by a company called seagull and it's built like a guitar so you can play it standing up um mm-hmm. and i i needed a slide guitar for a song that i was working on but i don't have a 
like a dobro, like a slide guitar. So I discovered that if I use my mountain dulcimer and uh, a socket from a socket wrench on my finger, that I can turn that <laughs> into a pretty convincing sounding slide guitar. Oh, it is <laughs> always useful nice. <laughs> to have random <laughs> instruments around your house. I love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I also I also play guitar and I play piano as well. Those are a little bit less uh, less exotic instruments. So. Oh. <laughs> a little bit more versatile, though. <laughs> yes, yes. People don't ask you what is that strange thing that you're playing. What is that? <laughs> Do you have a uh, an instrument that you just want, you love? You just want to get one day if you were given some large amount of money. Well, that's my hammered dulcimer. I've been wanting to play that for about a decade, mm. and now I have a, I have a small one, but I have one on my wish list that is multiple thousands of dollars, <laughs> and and one day, one day, uh, hopefully, I will own that one once I'm a little bit better. I mean, you can justify it <laughs> and right? have a little bit more spare money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> podcasting doesn't make a lot of money, unfortunately. So <laughs> no. Uh, well, no, I know it's a bummer. That, this is my retirement plan. I. I... To reconsider. <laughs> well, if you ever come across uh, an, a hurdy gurdy, let me know. If you've seen these, oh, these yes. old medieval instruments with the crank, I, I I've seen them in Europe before. They're fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> so, what what made you want to uh, apply for the for the Sinai and Synapses Fellowship? Um, what what drew drew you to it? How'd you find out about it? Rabbi Jeff was actually on my podcast a while mm. ago. I talked to him about the Jewish perspective of evolution. I believe that mm. was the right one. Um, and and so I you know one of the areas I look at is the area of overlap between science and religion and a lot of different ways of different, different religions too, not just Catholic or not just Christianity, but also all different religions approach science and what that overlap is. And so when I found out about that fellowship, it just seemed like a natural mm. fit, but also a really good opportunity to meet other people who are working on this because you know, unless unless you really look, it's kind of hard to find people sometimes. You know, we're not a we're not a very vocal crowd, or I mean, I'm hoping to change that, but <laughs> and many people are hoping to change that. But you know, people they uh, they hear a lot about the the conflict between science and religion, and they miss the fact that there are so many people who are working in science and religion, but not necessarily on the fact that are they compatible, which is which is an important question, but there's so much more to the dialogue than that. There's there's a lot of really rich discussion we can have if we begin to step away from um, you know, just the sheer fact are they compatible to, you know, what we can actually learn, what we can actually come up with together when we just have discussions. Yeah. That's why the work that you're doing is so important. This is the reason why we started this podcast was because we were like, this is such important work. Mm -hmm. And all of us in this fellowship, the first day that we met together, we realized we all feel alone in our context, but we're not. We're just, yeah. mm -hmm. we just don't have a a common group to rally around. A, 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 I, I don't know what, what it is. So we thought podcasting is a good way to get uh the word out there, it's accessible, it's easy. Um, and, and we found yeah. that to be true with so many people who have joined the community as well, that actually the last um, 
review that we got on iTunes said, I'm not the only one. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yep, no, you're true. not. There's a there's a whole lot of us out here, despite the fact that there's only like three podcasts um, on Apple that are about <laughs> this. There are so many of us. And um, I think the work of translating the work coming from the ivory tower into like applicable, practical, practical conversations is so important. Um, yes. And you do have a knack for for doing that, for communicating all of these really complicated topics that are so vastly diverse in in really easy to understand ways. Um, I do enjoy well, your you. podcast a lot. <laughs> Good. Thank you. <laughs> so at the end of our conversation here, then, I want to ask you uh, the question that I've asked everyone so far, which is, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? Yes, I've been I've been thinking about this, preparing oh. myself for what my answer would be. <laughs> I love that you did your homework. <laughs> um, you know, you can look at this in a scientific way, and you could look at this in a non-scientific mm. way. But for me, I think that it's important that when we look at each other, we look at people around the world, we look at people in our community um, who on the surface look very different from us or who seem very different than us, we're actually not that different. <laughs> um, when you look at evolution, you see how how much we're, we have in common, how much uh, that different communities of people are basically mm. the same. Um, when you're going through something that you just feel like, I'm the only person in the world that is suffering through this, and then you're not. You're just There are so many people who know exactly what you're feeling or who have been there before, um, even with cultures that are different, like when I've done a lot of interfaith work and people have these these still very pervasive biases against people of different religions. Mm. And when you really look at it, we're, there are some differences, but a lot of those differences are on the surface. When it comes down to it, deep down, we're all we're all pretty the same. We all we're all we all go through the same problems. We all feel the same things, and if people realize that, I think you know there wouldn't be as many problems in the world. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for spending this time um, to come on here and and talk with us. For all of you at home, um, her podcast is Spark Dialogue. It's one word. S-P-A-R-K-D-I-A-L-O-G. And that's available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as sparkdialogue.com, if you'd like to learn more about um, what she does and what she has done and what she cares about and all of the good things that she's doing. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 